welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Good morning, guys. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. Demo, my man. Hey, why don't you stand with me? We're going to do the reading of the word as is our customer, custom at King's Church. And we're, we're not leaving the Proverbs, but we're leaving where we were in the Proverbs to pop over to Proverbs chapter 14, uh, verse 32. It's one scripture. If you'll read it out loud with me, everybody. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. It's an encouraging one. I wanted to bring you an encouragement this morning. <laughs> Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that the living word planted in us produces the kingdom of heaven life that we're looking for, that life and that life more abundantly, Jesus, that you promised to us. And so we ask you that this morning the word would be planted into our heart, God, that it would produce your likeness and image in us, around us, in our families, in our home, in our workplaces. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. High five a neighbor. Be seated. When you high five him, say healing. Say no Rona. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate your keys in. Um, this is going to be a, a kind of a truncated message because I jumped off of my normal studying through the book of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 6 where we were, and I wanted to talk about our perspective as Christians when crazy things happen. Um, because I tend to default to a position that I think is the biblical position whenever the world is going haywire around us. And I want to talk to you about this, but Proverbs 14.32 says, The wicked are driven away in their wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. And the concept, you can see it, is that the wicked, even in what they're doing, even in what they, own choo they choose to do in their own life, they're driven away in fear and chaos by their own wickedness. They're even fleeing in their own method, in the way they do life, in the way they do things. But we of faith are not like that. We're not driven in fear. We're not driven by other entities or ideas or things. We are stabilized by the kingdom of heaven. And I want to talk about the right perspective to have and really the perspective of hope that we're given, we're granted in faith. So Revelations 1, 5, and 6, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. I love that the position for us at King's Church, the reason that we get to be kings is because Jesus has washed us in his blood. It is our categorical assignment as sons and daughters of God that we carry his image and likeness. Why? Because it says right here, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood and made us. So first the love of God comes, it's directed at us. Then we respond to his love and he washes us with our blood. And then we are renewed, regenerated. We are made this royal priesthood. 
a holy nation. It's a work that God does on his own that we can't do with our own effort or striving or plans, but it's a regenerative work of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us, and it's a re-identifying work. And it changes the way we actually think and believe and behave and function. We don't think and believe and behave like the world does. We do it like sons of God and daughters of God do, like kings and priests are called to function. G.K. Chesterton says this quote about hope. He says, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters or things of the world are really hopeful, hope is just flattery. It's platitude. It's meaningless. We don't need it. When things are going well, hope is an unnecessary thing. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. There are two positions that I'm hearing in the midst of the cultural chaos, and one is there's really not much. It's going to go away. It's totally fine. And the other is it's chaos. You know, turn the alarms on, lock everybody down. Neither of those positions are really hope positions because both of them, the strength is in man or the plans of man. And our positions as believers should be independent of the outcome. We remain the same. Our internal way of believing, living, behaving, functioning in this world doesn't change dependent upon our surroundings. It's what makes us a different kind of creature than the creatures that haven't been redeemed and regenerated. Because a different creature is driven by fear, by need, by hunger, by toilet paper shortages, right? And making crazy, rash decisions. But we don't need to be driven that way. Now listen, there's a difference between walking in wisdom and being driven. We walk in wisdom, we have lots of pasta. My wife went to Italy and bought all the pasta in Italy. So we're set if anybody wants ravioli at my house. But at the same time, we're not driven by fear. We, we walk in wisdom, we're not driven by an entity called fear that says, if you don't, you will lose and you will die. I, th I think there's two positions primarily because we live in a secular culture and that culture doesn't believe really that God exists. So if my life is over, it's all over. It's done. This is it. I am a, I am a microbe on a rock spinning through the universe and at some point my ride is over and it's the end. And if that's all there is to life, then please rush the Costco right? And climb over people and punch and stab your way for that little bit of life that's left. That's the kind of ideal that you walk with when you live in, in, a, in a culture or a, a system that says God is not real. You're an accident. You're a cosmic accident that's spinning around a cosmic accident. And at some point, your accident light will turn off and you will disappear. And there's two things that happen in that worldview. One, we do panic and do crazy things because we think our life is over and this is all there is. This little truncated 40 minutes of life is it. The other issue is I find that people behave immorally when they believe that God doesn't exist, right? So it's both you are terrified that your life is going to end, so you act rashly, but then if there's no God watching, I can do whatever I want. But if God is watching, and not only he's watching, but he's intimately involved in how we act, maybe even especially in chaos, he really cares when people are freaking out how we respond, then all the more shouldn't we hope 
And shouldn't we walk in calm and peace and his understanding? You know, there's this movie right now, um, The Invisible Man. Have you guys seen the ads around the city for it? My boys and I were walking down Pearl Street, and there's like a little Invisible Man poster, and they were wanting to know what the movie was about. And I was like, it's not for you. (laughs) It's an old H.G. Wells story that has been reiterated a couple of times in a couple of different films. And when The Invisible Man... And the one I watched in, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, he, gets in, he goes invisible and then he does whatever he wants morally, right? Because no one's watching, he can do whatever he wants. In the H.G. Wells story, the invisible man, the first thing he does is he breaks into somewhere and steals something. Because if no one's watching, I can do whatever it is I want. And the, and the brilliant picture of the invisible man to me is that people are living this life believing that they're invisible to God and therefore that they can do whatever they want. And if there is a God that's watching how we're behaving and how we're responding and he's going to say one day on judgment, hey, what did you do when the whole world freaked out? Did you just follow like a sheep? bang over the cliff? Or did you stand and say, God has a plan. He's our redeemer. He's our protector. He's our provider. He's good. We're going to make it through it. And if we don't, he's still good and he's going to still be good. There's this idea called philosophical materialism. And philosophical materialism basically says, um, all we are right now living and functioning is just this stuff. It's just this matter. It's just these trips to Costco. It's just the stuff I have in my house. And if we live that way, we cannot live at peace in a world where there's chaos around us because it's over. But if we live in the Christian faith where God is actually the designer of the universe, he's sovereign and providentially ruling the affairs of man, we can say, God, I don't know what's happening but what am I called to be in the midst of this chaos? And that I'm not responding to fear. I'm moving from faith into position that I as a Christian can be a light in a dark world and I can shine in the midst of chaos. I want to share a couple of scriptures with you. And these are really intense scriptures. And these are scriptures that I think are really important. The first one is... um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. And Paul is talking about the potentiality of his impending death. And this is what Paul says about his impending death. Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have complete boldness, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live here on this life is the life where it's me representing Christ, but if I die, it's actually to my benefit. It continues in 22, but if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So what do I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better indeed, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And I just think this paradigm is such an incredibly stark contrast to the fear paradigm, to the fear of death paradigm, that Paul is actually saying, listen, I know there's 
there's torment happening to the early church and people are getting assassinated and people are going to get thrown to the lions here soon and it's crazy. But I just want you to know I'm not scared because for me to live is Christ but to die is gain because I get to stand before a loving father and his son Jesus that's purified me and made me whole and righteous before the throne and he's going to reward me according to how I've represented Christ and labored among you. I have a, um, a really wonderful mom, and she has taught me a number of lessons in a number of strange manners. <laughs> and at the, the, the passing of my grandfather on her side, she taught me about death. And it was a really bizarre way. And she walked up to the casket with me next to her, and she said, poke him in the head. And I was like, is this, a, is this legal? Are we allowed to do this? Am I going to get arrested? I think I was seven years old. And she said, no, seriously, I want you to poke him. And so I, you know, very lightly, very lightly, just kind of touched his head. And I don't know if you've ever touched a dead person before. It is very, very, very different than touching a live person. It is, it is bizarre because it's, it doesn't feel, the skin is not as flexible. There's not a warmth there. There's not a vibrancy. It's, it's touching a corpse. And I, it was a weird moment. And my mom said to me, see, David, it's just his body here He's now with Jesus. So you don't have to be sad in the sense that he's in a better place. He's with Jesus. And, I, and I, it was kind of a weird <laughs> experience, but it impacted me so deeply that for me, I understood even as a small boy to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's that I'm not, like when I, I had an understanding when I touched my grandfather, he was not there anymore. He was, he was, his life was somewhere else. We were talking about last week in Christianity, our teleology, which is, which is our way of looking at purpose in the scripture, is all about life. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, it's always about the life and the continuance of life. So in the system of the world, if this is all there is, it's death, it's dark, and it's over. But if we're Christians and we believe God has a plan and a purpose for us, this is just the beginning of something that will go on in eternity because our God is a God of life. Therefore, eternal life is essential to what we believe. And there was a time where believers, Christians, had a sense of my actions today in my very day are about eternity. And a lot of times we as believers focus on, on how do I get my job better or how do I get more uh, money taken care of in my life right now? How do I fix my relationships? And while those are important and God cares about our today, our eternity is a lot longer. And it's a lot more potent. And there'll be a day where we stand in front of the Father and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into rest. John 14 says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me as well. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Verse 3. And if I go... And prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you also may be where I am. The perspective 
of Jesus, he's on his way out of the earth, right? He's leaving his ministry in John chapter 14. The disciples are freaked out. They don't know what's going to happen. And he says, I, Jesus, God, am going to prepare a place for you guys to go when this is all said and done. And it is, it encapsulates our Christian story that when chaos comes or when fear comes, that we have hope not primarily in the now. And I, I want to I say that in the context of a church where we believe God's real, he's good, we believe we can pray for the sick, we believe in all of that kind of great stuff for the now, but we, we need to have our hearts fixed, our hope fixed, not just in the immediate. But the perspective that Jesus gives his disciples is a perspective of hope fixed in a future time. That independent of what happens now, for me to live as Christ here, walking as a representative of him, but to die is a gain to me. And it's a massive benefit. And it is so contrary to how we live in our current culture right now. In a, in a state where evolutionary theology, if it's a theology or whatever it is, a mindset, is really the controlling ideas, it's all over after this. And we as Christians say, listen, whether a virus or an atomic bomb or a meteor from outer space or any of those things happen, for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. My hope is not fixated here on the things that are temporal. My hope is fixed on the things that are eternal, the things that are with Christ. So I'm going to jump into a classic story um, in Daniel chapter 6. And Daniel is living. He's a Christian guy. He's a Christian guy. He's a follower of God in that Babylonian context. And he is a leader. He does such a great job as a teacher, as a counselor to the king. He is one of the leaders in the nation, and they pass a decree across the nation, nationwide decree, no more praying to God. You know the story, Daniel in the lion's den? A decree gets passed for just a period of time where Daniel is commanded by this edict across the whole nation to no longer do his three times a day. And Daniel... As, a, as somebody that was a counselor to a king was a guy that was on his knees specifically before God three times every single day. You know, sometimes we see um, in New York City, I don't know if you guys see um, Muslim guys getting down on their prayer rugs throughout the city. They do it five times a day, right? A lot of them do it that way. And I was talking to my boys and they were, we were walking down Pearl Street and they were, said, why is that guy doing that? And I said, well, they're really devout and one of my kids said something like, oh, I don't know if that's right. And I said, what's amazing about it is that they actually do it. And how many Christians do we have in our communities that do not pray three times a day or two times a day or one time a day unless, like, there's a coronavirus, then we're praying. <laughs> then we start. Then it's like my prayer language is working now. I'm like, God, keep me healthy. And the truth is, that Daniel was able to represent God in Babylon, a secular and foreign city, because, in fact, he had a consistent and disciplined relationship with God. And that an e this edict came down, 
If you know the story, his peers in the kingdom, they were all in this kind of cast of counselors that were counseling the king, and they really didn't like Daniel, in part because he was awesome at his job, and there's competition and all that natural stuff. But the other part was they didn't like him because he was a follower of God. So they they have this king pass this rule that he can't pray anymore. Um, Verse 11, I'm going to read... Excuse me, verse 13, I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 6. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. So they're saying he's a foreigner. We don't like him. He's not, our, he's not a part of us. One of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown came to save him. Can I ask you a question? If you were doing something wrong and broke a direct law at your job, would your boss do everything in his power to save you? Does your boss love you that much? Because Daniel is a, a believer in Yahweh that's serving a secular king in a secular culture, but he's doing such a phenomenal job as a servant that his, when, when it's time for him to get hatcheted, the king's like, oh my gosh, this is one of my best guys. A lot of times, like, people or religious people are like, oh, my boss, if they were only saved, I would do such a better job. No, wrong, wrong answer. Daniel is serving a wicked king, and he's doing such an amazing job that king's like, in distress to lose this guy. Where are we? Verse 14, verse 15, then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to them, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God who you serve continually rescue you. And I just love that the king knew about Daniel, that this was a guy that served God continually. That's the, that's the final statement before he sends him to the lions, that this is a person that is consistently, continually a servant of God. And it begs the question for us as believers, that people around us, are we continually servants of God? We're like, ah, that guy, like, He's kind of a half-servant of God, or he's a little bit. But Daniel's disciplined life and his love for God, right, it's not that it made him righteous, or it's not that discipline makes us righteous. Let me say it that way. The blood of Jesus makes us righteous, but our continual commitment to, to, to our Father God makes the people around us recognize the favor of God in our life and then is a testimony to his goodness. It says this, um, so the king gave the order, and he said, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. The idea of a lion's den is the idea of utter and absolute guaranteed death. And that you would not only be in the den, but you would be in the dead ultimately sealed. It's actually a picture conceptually of the grave itself. The gnawing beasts that are lions that are destroying any life that's thrown into it. 
and we think about situations in our life that seem like they're gigantic, especially when people talk about things that are like almost specters, like there's a disease out there it's floating around the ether. At some point, you'll probably get it and die. Like, how do you fight a disease that's floating around in the ether? You don't. It's almost like it's coming to you like the Borg in Star Trek. Anybody remember that? Is that way too old a reference, John? My man. <laughs> Aunt Jackie. <laughs> um, it's like it's coming to you and it's not going to stop. And Daniel is thrown into this pit that conceptualizes a place of there is no possible way of escape. But the sovereignty of God rules independent of all decrees, independent of absolute, guaranteed, impending death, God and his sovereignty is still in control. So we can fix our hope on the eternal picture and still know in the here and in the now, if you're a son of God, if you're a daughter of God, there's no reason to fear, even if it's ultimate death. Like in the lion's den, they lather you with barbecue sauce. You're hanging out down there. They close the mouth. You are done for. And God still wins and his guy still stands forth. And I think that's the kind of position that I want to have every time, anytime there's any ever chaos around me. It's a twofold position that we can stand in as believers. The first is, for me, baseline. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Baseline. Baseline, I am going to be with my Father who loves me, and he will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into my rest. Baseline. Second point is, if God's got things for me to do down here, not a hair of my head will be harmed. Not, not a member of my family will be touched. Because even in absolute certainty, Rock on the tomb, sealed deal, God's still in control. And it says, and at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, was he able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Now, I just love this. Because Daniel disobeyed the decree of the king, but in his response to the king, he's still incredibly honoring. Right? He's not like, I'm in charge, me and God. We don't do what the government says. Like, he actually does what's right before the Lord, and in his response to the king, he honors the king. And he says, may the king live forever. My God sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And you're like, man, David, that's a really cool story. But I, in fact, am not innocent. <laughs> Do anybody have that thought in their, their head when they hear this story? Like Daniel was innocent, but I may actually, in fact, not be. The unbelievable beauty of our faith is that the gift of Jesus is our righteousness. That the gift of the cross, that Jesus himself went through the lion's den and was not spared so that we might be spared. That he went into the darkness of death. And just like Daniel, it's a prophetic picture that the, 
stone was rolled over the, over the tomb in the same way that for Jesus, the stone was rolled over the tomb and he entered into death on our behalf so that we would live in resurrection life on his behalf. And so when you read this story and you're like, David, well, I'm not perfect. That's okay. Let Jesus be your perfection. Let Jesus be your righteousness. Lean into his grace. Lean into his forgiveness and let his work be a work that's inside of you that works out righteousness. Not because of our striving or our trying or like, oh, I'm going to be perfect. So just like Daniel, so God doesn't drop the coronavirus on my head. No, wrong. That our righteousness is found in Jesus and faith is the key to access that place. And that we can say, God, in the midst of chaos or surety, Jesus is my righteousness. In the midst of impending doom, destruction, or blessing, Jesus is my righteousness. I was, um, I think I was 18, maybe just about to turn 19 when I gave my, my life to the Lord fully. And it was in a message, not this message, but a message about Esther and the prophet Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, perhaps you have been born in this day, in this time, in this season, in this culture to do something tremendous for God, to stand up for him and see your people saved. And then he says, but if you don't, you're not going to live. Your house will be destroyed and relief and deliverance will arise from another place. You know, Jesus said... To his disciples, we sang a wedding march for you, and we wanted you to dance, and you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge for you, a funeral march, and you didn't cry. And he said, there are methods, the concept is, there are methods by which I try to grab the hearts of men. And as the representatives of Jesus right now in this earth, you all here today, you have to understand that there are times in our nation, in our culture, where there's a wedding march, and it's like, free party, Jesus, your forgiveness, he's going to bless you, and it's great, join the party. And there are times where it's scary, and we don't know what's going to happen. Well, God uses both of those times to draw the hearts of men back to him. And we can be the catalyst by being people that walk in the peace and the power, and the security of a good God during those times. That we can know that our hope is fixed in a future with a good God, and in the now, if God still has something for me, nothing will touch me, because he's sovereign over the affairs of men. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.